Oh, well, good morning. Isn't it good to be here and not anywhere else? I was great, greatly relieved when we uh, were allowed out and knew that I wouldn't be just doing this in front of a camera. Like, just, it's the weirdest thing ever to be in church with only a camera. It's just wrong. So it's good, isn't it? It feels a bit resurrected almost, doesn't it? Bethy's going to come and uh, read this morning's passage uh, for us. And um, it's a short passage, but listen carefully to it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen, down, uh, fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, Bethany's going to stay here because I wanted to read it one more time. I've always had a, a real attraction to a story in the Old Testament where Jonathan and his armour bearer um, are climbing through some rocks or up a cliff or something or other and they spy the Philistine army. Do you know this story? And Jonathan says to his armour bearer, what do you reckon? us two against them, and he says, let's take them on, just us, perhaps God will help us. And it's that, that word perhaps that I find so attractive because it's like full of incredible courage and, and faith and no presumption whatsoever. Perhaps, you know, perhaps God will be with us, perhaps we'll win. The passage that Bethany is reading for us this morning could not be more different. This passage is loaded with certainty. And as Bethany reads it for us once again, listen to the language that Paul uses. It's, a, it's declamatory. It's, a, it's, an, it's full of absolutes. There's no perhaps anywhere in it, nothing remotely like it. I want you to listen carefully. It's, it's, a, it's a statement of fact in, in utter completeness. Thanks, Beth. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be, to be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Thanks, Beth. You see what I mean? It's just... An absolute. Now, the resurrection can be a complicated topic, and when I discovered that that was today's reading some while ago, I thought, oh no, because you sort of, it, 
the whole topic is surrounded by a million theories of how it's going to happen and what will happen first and what will happen second and last. I'd like you this morning to put that well out of mind and just hold in your thoughts the simplicity of what Paul just said. Forget all the theories and just the resurrection as he described it. There it is. In a sense, that is very, very contrary to our life. This declaration that Paul has given us is full of permanence. It's full of absolutes. The life that we live day to day is the opposite, really. It's full of impermanence and it's full of uncertainty perhaps never more so than now when we don't know from week to week whether we're allowed out of our houses you know it's a very uncertain world now isn't it more than it's been in my lifetime i think and it's um it, it's sort of sharp to me the great contrast between what we read and the way we live how do we understand the resurrection from the position of our frailty how does that certainty bring life to our uncertainty? You could, you could view it simply as a wonderful reward at the end and as long as we can get there, that's it. It's, it's the reward. But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's enough. I don't think Paul was simply giving us um, a glimpse of what's to come so that we'll just run faster now. There may be some truth in that, but I don't think it's the end of the truth at all. I once had a, a really fascinating interview with a Catholic priest because I was doing some study and um, part of what I had to do was, was interview um, leaders from various strands of the Christian church and you know, write, write about it at some length. And so I met with this priest and it was really a most remarkable encounter. He was a very a very, very educated man and he was frequently in Rome doing study, whatever that is they study over there. He was a, an intellectual man. One of the questions I asked him with some trepidation, but I really wanted to know was, does the Catholic priesthood um, mean anything after the resurrection? Now, I said this morning we weren't going to get complicated, so I don't get complicated because it's his reply that's important. To me, that was just something that I wanted to understand. And he looked at me with a strange look, and I thought, I hope I've not been offensive, because I thought perhaps I had. And he said to me, isn't the resurrection like standing on the surface of the sun? In other words, how can we, how can we even begin to conjecture what might or might not be and it has stayed with me through many many years now that that i think he's right i think the resurrection is so far beyond our imagining at one place paul says now we see through a dim glass and then we will see face to face and there's a number of things that paul says like this it is so astonishingly different to our experience of this life it's almost the the polar opposite perhaps it is the polar opposite so this morning I want to think together, how do we bring these two polarities close so that we're nourished by it? How do we understand it in a way that isn't simply um, doctrinal, you know, there's, the, there's that great fascination with what happens when, but let's, not that. How do, how do we nourish ourselves? How do, how do we receive 
the life-giving truth of the, the resurrection at the end? How do we receive that into the frailty of our day-to-day life and the uncertainty of this moment? Rather than expound and explain, because I don't really like expounding and explaining, I don't think I'm very good at it, what I'd like to do is just show you or share with you the resurrection through the eyes of six people of faith. Six stories, if you like. And I'm, going to, I'm hoping I can restrain myself from trying to explain away and just leave you with some thoughts and some ideas that I pray, and I have been praying, will bring life into our hearts, life that we can share, life that we can live and life that we can share. The first person is a taxi driver. His name's Reddy. I don't, I don't know how many of you travel by taxi. Reddy's a Christian man. All these six people are people of faith. And I, um, I travelled with Reddy this week. I've been travelling in his taxi for a decade now. And it's funny, you know, in Victoria, when you ring up to book a taxi, when I ring up to book a taxi, I have to ask for a what to, not a where to, a what to. And so that stands for wheelchair accessible taxi two, meaning you can put two wheelchairs in it. So I have to say, could you send me a what to? And then they say, where to? And, and I say, no, 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 a what to? Yes, yes, but where to? And then you can tell them where to. But then at the end, you just have to make sure it is a what to, isn't it? As well as a where to. So where to are we sending the what to? But if you, ring, if you ring in New South Wales, it's entirely different. And if you ring up over there and you say, could you send me a what to? They say, what now? It's good. <laughs> the language over there doesn't work at all. So, <laughs> ready. <laughs> Does anybody know ready? I asked him whether I, he's a Christian man. He has been part of this congregation quite some time back, I think. And I asked him whether I could share this story this morning, and he was glad that I would. When he arrived to pick me up, he just got out of the taxi. He's always a man with a broad smile. He's a lovely man. He's an Indian fellow. And he had an extra broad smile, like extra teeth, like he'd got a bigger set of teeth or something. And he said to me, not hello, not where are we going, not what to or where to. He said, I have been given a new life. No, I'm living a new life. It's the only thing for a taxi man to say, isn't it? But he just, he's putting down the ramp and he just smiles at me and says, I'm living a new life. And I thought, great, <laughs> good, ready, that's terrific. And he told me what had happened. He said just a few days ago he'd been driving his cab over near the medical centre there in the umbrella place and a, a very large tree had fallen onto the taxi as he drove it. He was travelling at 60 kilometres an hour and while, while he's driving, he's a wonderful taxi driver because he talks a lot and doesn't appear to be actually driving while he's talking. But <laughs> and so he's showing me on the roof while we're driving. <laughs> where <laughs> He said, here, just above his head, he said, just here is where the tree pushed the thing in. And he said, all the way from here, to the back of the taxi, 
And, and he said, my head was just like this, just a little space, and the rest of the whole long maxi-taxi was squashed by the tree, driving at 60 kilometres an hour, so the tree hit the cab and then rolled off the taxi, and he's still driving at some speed. And he said, I was just perfectly safe, and I could use the brakes to stop the taxi. And he said, I'm living a new life. He said, I always believe in Jesus. I always pray. I always know that he's going to save me. And he did. Just such... You know that look in somebody's face that's just radiant? Like when Moses came down from the mountain with the commandments and he had to cover his face with a, with a, um, a veil of some sort because, he's, because if people were to look at him, it would be too much. It was like that, some, something extraordinary, a life that was just renewed and so full was shining from him. And he didn't talk about anything else the whole trip. It was just wonderful. That's a good resurrection story, a new life. The second person to tell you about is my own father. So three weeks ago, Dad was admitted to um, hospital. He lives in aged care in Sydney, and he was admitted to hospital with chest pain. And his um, uh, cardiologist rang me a day later and said, we're going to do an angiogram this morning, and we're going to um, have a look and see what's happening. And then. A few hours later, the, the cardiologist rang me a second time and he said, well, we did an angiogram and we put two stents in your father's heart. I guess you all know what a stent is, the little thing that makes the arteries clear and bigger. And he said that they were, when we looked eight years ago, compared to when we looked this morning, one had, had closed down 70% and one had closed down 90%, so we opened them both up and you should see your dad flourish. Well, flourish... He did. It's astonishing to me that at 88, you can do this procedure in a hospital and go home the next day with such an astonishing thing done to your heart. But my dad just blossomed. He, has, he had been having a pretty tough year. Um, he's got dementia and he was really struggling and he was quite discouraged. And it just evaporated. And he, he, as far as I know, he, he only ever rings me or my brother or Karen my wife. But in, when he got back to his room, he started ringing people. He rang a close family friend and she rang me and she said, your dad just rang me up and he said, I have a new lease on life. A bit like the taxi story almost. He just rang up and he said, hello, I have a new lease on life. And again, just an extraordinary lifting up. Two weeks later, my father fell over and broke his hip a week ago now and ended up back in the same hospital with a broken hip and had to have a hip replacement at 88 and he is not going very well at all. He won't ever see that little room that he's been living in with all his familiar furniture again. He um, will have to move from here into the, from hospital into the, the high care end of the nursing home. And it's like that moment of light has evaporated for him. Who knows? We don't know. 
But that's the experience that he's facing at the moment. The third story I want to tell you is about um, a good friend that I've had now for a decade, and he is a person of faith and has also been in this congregation. You may know him, but I won't use his name. He um, was a tradesman who, many years ago now, woke up one morning paralysed down one side of his body and suffering from a brain aneurysm which required extensive surgery. And so he lives now with um, almost complete paralysis of one side of his body. He has severe brain damage and uh, can speak very, very little. Prior to this happening to him, he was a pilot and as well as the trade, a tradesman, he was a pilot and also a competition aerial skier. You know that, the steep one where they shoot down and up like that and then they launch? That was what he did. And now he does nothing. He's lived for many years this way now and I talk to him often. And the word that he uses most frequently, he, I don't know, he might only have about a dozen words that he really can say. And the word that he uh, says to me most often by a, a large degree is the word why. And he, he, he really does live, I think, an, an excruciatingly difficult life. And he says why, why, why. And there is no answer to that question and sometimes I try and encourage them not to ask it. And there are some questions in, in life that are really only answered by the resurrection. Now, I know that the story that I told about Reddy and the first of my father's story, that's the sort of stuff we like, isn't it? That's the testimony that we enjoy. Somebody who can stand up here and say, I was down but now I'm up. I was in trouble, but God has helped me. That's the test. The test. Ooh, not to do that, am I? That's the testimony that we love to hear, and we should because it's, it's the truth, and it is just enormously liberating when God moves in a, a, a strong and wonderful way in our lives. However, each of the three stories is the truth, and the truth in them can't be denied, and we need to be able to embrace all of those stories. And all of those stories, in, in a sense, will be part of our own experience. Sometimes it's attractive and sometimes it isn't. The fourth of the six is a character in the Bible and so is the fifth and the sixth. Number four is Job. Now Job is a story pretty well known to us and it's possibly the, well, people say that Job is the oldest writing in the Bible because Job is a patriarch and his story comes from well, betime, well before the, the time of Moses. And so he's probably the oldest character in the book. And that's significant because in the very middle of his most intense trouble, he made a statement which is perhaps the first prophecy of the resurrection and you'll know it when I read it. You might know it because it's, it forms a very central part of Handel's Messiah which 
perhaps is familiar to. It's a piece of music that I love enormously. And but if, even if you don't know the Messiah, you'll know these words. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And though worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Isn't that just the most fabulous passage? Doesn't, doesn't that just... Whoa. It's the day for reading things twice, so I'm going to read it again. I know that my Redeemer lives... I just love that. He's, he's, he's a man in the deepest trial. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Isn't that an astonishing thing to say? This man, so far back in history, can see prophetically so far forward and say, in the end, my Redeemer will stand on the earth. And though worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh I will see God. The resurrection... In my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Isn't that a beautiful and poetic and wonderful picture of the resurrection? Number five is Paul. And Bethany's going to come back. Paul writes a lot about the resurrection he comes to it so many times. And so what I've done is just grab a handful of the key things he said, and Bethany's going to read them. They're from various parts in Paul's writings, and she's going to read them without any references at all, just bundled together. Now, if you have to know the references, see me later. But what I want you to do is listen to the Bible in a different way, because sometimes we, we sort of get a bit mesmerised by those numbers, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers. But of course, they are a, a, an invention. Paul didn't write little numbers before his sentences. So just listen to all these truths. Read them slowly, Beth, and just listen to the language. Listen to what he says. Don't try and, don't try and make it fit into a theory of, of resurrection. Just listen to what he says and be excited by the truth that he offers us. Thank you. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by, better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, 
but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that has been written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Thanks, Beth. The last scripture is from Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 and it's such, a, such an important thing where Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies or in the, the older versions it says quicken the, the spirit will quicken your mortal body and there's a there's a wonderful clue here because in that moment Paul is sort of bringing together the resurrection ahead of us the certainty of it with the uncertainty and frailty of our mortal life because he's talking about the spirit of god quickening this body not not a body to be resurrected in the future, but this body will be quickened and made alive and given strength. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth, a beautiful thing. The last person to share the resurrection through their eyes is, is Thomas in the Bible. And I love this. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. In, um, in the chapters that describe the Lord's uh, supper, the, the last Passover that Jesus shares with the disciples. We see Jesus finishing, having washed the feet and having shared the meal. He draws the, the conversation to himself perhaps and they stop having little chats and, and he offers some instruction. He, he tells them that, that he is leaving them, that he is departing and that that where he's heading, they can't come. Now picture this, you're a disciple of Jesus and you've, you've been part of this most astonishing and miraculous three years. Wherever Jesus goes, you go with him. And wherever, wherever Jesus is, fabulous things keep happening, things beyond belief, things that have never been seen before. People healed, miracles performed. This life that you live with Jesus is so intimate and so continual and all of a sudden Jesus says, well, I'm going now and where I go, you can't come. It's a strange thing, isn't it? It's a bit jarring. 
And then at the beginning of chapter 14, he has some familiar words. Where I am going, you cannot come, but you will follow me. That's the end of chapter 13. So you will come, but you can't come now. And then Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. It's all a bit cryptic, and Thomas is the one who speaks up. And I, I really like Thomas. It's a bit like that verse we began with, with the, the perhaps God will help us. It's sort of similar. Right? I love Thomas's honesty, because to my mind, he's, you know how he's called doubting Thomas sometimes, because he won't believe the resurrection of Jesus until he touches the wounds in his hands and touches the wound in Jesus' side. But I like... I like the frank acknowledgement of doubt because doubt leads to faith. Doubt, you have to pass through doubt to find faith. Doubt's, doubt's not the enemy that, that sometimes people think it is. And I love the freedom that Thomas has right now to sort of call this out and say, no, 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 stop for a minute, stop for a minute. I simply don't understand this. Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You haven't told us where you're going. You've told us we can't come. How in the world do we know the way to a place that we don't know? How can you know the way to go to a place that you don't know where the place is? It's a pretty fair question, isn't it? And I like the way Thomas can, can give that voice. Jesus, you've told us you won't tell us where you're going, but you're saying we know the way. And I guess all the other disciples are sort of going, oh, that's true. Waiting to see what Jesus will say next. And at that point, I reckon, we've reached the heart of the dilemma that we've been talking about this morning. The certainty of the resurrection, as Paul describes it. The, the absolute confidence, the truth, the glory of it, the, the perfection of it which is so at odds with the uncertainty and the frailty of the life we live right now. And right here, Tom, uh, Thomas is, has found his way to the heart of it. In a sense, he's saying, Jesus, how can you fit these things together? It doesn't work. And so Jesus gives a reply which just is so unexpected. You might, you, you might already know what he's about to say. It's, it, it's such a, it's like in a novel, you know when you read a novel and suddenly things change direction and it's just an unexpected turn. That's the way I read this. Thomas, in a sense, is saying, how do we, Jesus, how do we find our way from frailty to strength? How do we find our way from doubt to certainty? What, where is the journey? How do we get to where you are? How do we join you where you are, the wonderful place where your life is? We're, we're losing you and we want to be with you. How do we get there? How do we, how do we move from our place of weakness to your place of strength? How do we move 
from our place of doubt to your place of certainty? How do we follow you so that we change from having faith to having experience? It's a wonderful moment and Jesus says in answer, I am the way. It's lovely, isn't it? I am the way. I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And so this morning, what we've got to do, I think, is not allow ourselves to be tempted to view the resurrection as something that needs to be learned or understood or expounded or explored. Perhaps there's a time for all that, but what I want to what I want to take from the, the resurrection isn't something intellectual. It isn't something sort of doctrinal or structured or whatever. What I want to take from the resurrection is the life that it can offer me. Jesus says, the way is not something that you can learn. The way is not something that you can discover. The way is not something that you can be taught. The way is me. The way is my life. And that means for us that our way from here towards resurrection, not just eventually, but continually, as Paul says, the spirit that dwells in us will quicken our mortal body right now. The way, the path, is to walk with Christ. It's that simple. The path to resurrection is to follow Jesus and to walk with him. So the next step on that path is always immediate. It's always right here. The next step I take is on that path. When I was a, uh, an apprentice carpenter, I can remember quite clearly one day I was working on a very long piece of timber. It was, it was going to be a, a, a big long part of a courthouse and it had to be really, really well done. It was, a, it was going to be an angled piece that sort of sat somewhere, I can't quite remember. It was a big piece of wood and I was working with hand tools to put a particular bevel on it and, and it was just so long and we just, I just had to work along. It was held on a big long workbench by numbers of clamps and vices. And as I was working along it with a plane, it suddenly dawned on me that eternal life isn't something that will arrive. There isn't a point at which I will, in the future, begin eternal life because our eternal life is already with us, isn't it? And I'm working along this piece of wood and it suddenly seemed clear to me that this is eternal life. We are living it. It will keep going on because we're following Christ. It's not something that is yet to happen. It's something with us now. And so it is with resurrection. It is, it is a glorious moment that lies in God's plan. But it is also the immediate path of following Christ. To walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to be on the path. How can we know the way to an, uh, to an unknown place? Thomas's question, it's such a good question, isn't it? How can we know the way to a place that we don't know? Because the way is Jesus. As Bob brings the, um, the band back up to lead us in the end of our service, I'd like to uh, just lead you in um, a few moments of silence where we can again welcome Jesus into our hearts. Come on, people. <laughs> That's it. Let's just have a moment together in quietness where we can say again, Jesus, 
walk with me, I with you. Let's just close our eyes and welcome Christ again. Amen.